recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is, I don't know what today is. Today is Friday, November 22nd, 2013. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I want to talk for a minute about um, my new website. Well, well, the future, org. It's right now it's at next.christagenia.org. It's on a subdomain. It's being developed. It has, um, well, well, a lot of my documents are there already. I still got about three or 400 podcasts to post and um, the rest of my essays and some of my articles are still missing. It's coming along. It's, um, I hope to have it. I really hope to move it to my regular website, to, to move that domain to Christagenia.org to make the new website my, 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 my real website, right? By the time of Christagenia's fifth anniversary, January 6th, I, I'm shooting for that. It, it's, um, I, I can get the work done. I have a couple of technical hurdles that I have to overcome before I do that that I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to have the time to do. That, that's just the bottom line. If I don't, that, then um, hopefully sometime in January, I, I mean, I initially figured it would take me six months to do, and, and um, it, it's not going to take me that long at the rate I've been going. It, it might take another month or so. If I get to work on it that much, I have another project for um, for, for Carolyn Yeager that I had promised, and, and that's a... Um, a revisionist Holocaust memorial website. I, I may, I, I may not even. Sh- I, I probably shouldn't even be announcing this yet, but, but I'm going to. I, I have to do that, and I promised her that for January that will be done. And, and um, that, that's it. The rest of my time is going to go into this new Christiania website and, and to these programs, of course, and, and my Bible commentaries, what, which I offer here. We're not going to finish the Book of Acts this year. That's for certain. That this I, I haven't counted them. It, it's got to be um, the, the 24th, 25th, 26th installment of Acts, Acts chapter 21, is what we will present here tonight. We won't finish it because the last paragraph of Acts chapter 21 really belongs with Acts chapter 22, and, and I'm going to hold that paragraph off until then. Next.christagenia.org, the, the main difference in the new website I hope is that it's a lot more navigable and that the menus are not as daunting. That, that um, when you click across the top, the center menu especially, the center column is going to change and, and be context sensitive with the section of the website that you click on across the top. I don't know why for some reason, I, I mean maybe it's just me, um, I, I'm used to just a couple of websites, right? I, I don't go to a lot of different websites. I, I hardly go to websites on my own, to be honest with you, because I'm always working. Um, I, I don't get a whole lot of time to cruise the Internet, but, but a lot of people found the menus on the old website daunting, and, and um, I, I guess they had a problem finding a lot of things. I, I, I can't understand why, but I, I'm trying to make this new website more context-sensitive that, the menus are broken down in, into several sections, well, later 10 sections across the top, and, and the center, the two left columns will change depending on what section you're in, but 
the documents, most of the documents for each section will be linked in the center column. And that's how I that's how I plan it. I don't know if that's how it's going to work out because even breaking down my website into six or eight or ten different sections, it's still a lot of documents, and and I I, I have to be able to have them all on menus. Other than that, the search tool on, on the new site and the old site what worked pretty well, and a lot of people simply use the search tool. But the search tool is um. It's pretty advanced. You could find any word down to three letters. Okay. Tonight is um, Acts chapter 21. Presenting these last three... Oh, oh I'm sorry. That, that's what I wanted to say. The, the biggest difference in the new website is that it's going to be Android-friendly. The videos and, and the podcasts should play without a problem on Android devices, which is, a, which is a sticking point with the older technology that I used for the main Christogenia website as it is, and for all the Christogenia websites except for perhaps Clifton's, which is based on newer technology. Now with that, I will proceed with Acts chapter 20. Presenting these last three chapters of Acts, chapters 18 through 20, I'm sorry, this is Acts chapter 21. We discussed where Paul had written each of the seven of those of his surviving epistles which were written while he was a free man. And, and I thought I would summarize this so that it's in one place. The first epistle to the Thessalonians was, no doubt, the earliest of Paul's surviving epistles and was written in Corinth as we know from Acts 18 and from 1 Thessalonians 3.6. The second epistle to Thessalonians followed the first in short time and was very likely also written from Corinth during Paul's long sojourn there. He spent a year and a half there, Acts chapter 18. The epistle to the Galatians was written during Paul's stay in Antioch, which is described in Acts chapters 18, verses 22 and 23, where he also had his final meeting with Peter described in Galatians chapter 2. It could not have been written before that time. Paul visited the Galatians soon thereafter, and his epistle reflects an anticipation. His looking forward to visit them in its fourth chapter, verses 18 and 20. The epistle, which we know as 1 Corinthians, was written from Ephesus, which we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. During the three-year period that Paul stayed in Ephesus, which is described in Acts chapter 19. The second epistle to the Corinthians was written as Paul journeyed from Macedonia to visit Achaia, Corinth was in Achaia, for the last time, and before he reached Corinth for his final visit there. This was fully elucidated last week as we discussed the circumstances of Paul's travels in relation both to the circumstances of his ministry and to the things which he wrote to them in that epistle. The first epistle to Timothy was written from Greece around this same time, as the circumstances indicate, in conjunction with Paul's own comment in 1 Timothy 
chapter 1, verse 3, talking about how he left Timothy in Ephesus. Finally, the epistle to the Romans was written from the Troad during Paul's stay there, which is described at the beginning of Acts chapter 20, which is evident both from the lists of men who were with Paul, which is provided in Acts chapter 20, and the list of men who were with Paul, which Paul writes and, and records the, their greetings to the Romans in, in Romans chapter 16. It's also evident from comments, from Paul's own comments concerning his ministry and his plans to visit Rome, which were made in Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 28. The other seven of Paul's surviving epistles were all written while he was in bonds. Six of them were written from Rome. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon were all written while Paul was under arrest in Rome. While one, the epistle to the Hebrews, which some fools don't even accredit Paul with that epistle, but Paul definitely wrote that epistle. The epistle to the Hebrews was ostensibly written while Paul was under arrest in Caesarea before he was sent to Rome. We will present the evidence for this in summary as we present the closing chapters of Acts. However, it cannot be taken for granted that we have all of Paul's epistles. We certainly don't. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul mentions a previous letter which he had written to them which is apparently now lost. In Colossians 4.16, one of those letters which were written from Rome, we see that Paul had also written an epistle to the Laodiceans, the Laodiceans. And Laodicea was not far from Colossae, which is where the Colossians were, right? Colossae and Laodicea are very close to each other in Anatolia. That epistle was also apparently lost. It would not be fantastic to imagine that Paul had written many more epistles during his ministry. He didn't sit around every night sitting on his hands. But now, whatever else he wrote is lost, except for the 14 epistles that we have. There were other writings in, in the early medieval period that people tried to, um, that people tried to accredit to Paul and they all fell by the wayside. They were all, in one way or another, obvious frauds. The, the ones that I've had the opportunity to read, anyway. Some of them are in old lost books of the Bible and the missing books of Eden and, and other apocryphal and pseudepigraphal works like those. Acts chapter 20 leaves off with the elders of the Christian assembly of Ephesus escorting Paul of Tarsus to a ship bound for Syria. Of course, they're not in Ephesus, they're in Miletus. That Paul may be in Jerusalem before the Pentecost, which was evidently the Pentecost 
of 57 AD. And we will, see, we, we will see the reasons for that later on when we encounter Festus and Felix, the Roman procurators of Judea, as Paul's under arrest in Caesarea. This chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 21, opens as Paul is on a ship headed to Syria so that he could go to Jerusalem. Others are with him, including Luke, as once again the narrative is being written in the first person. Timothy is also ostensibly with Paul on this trip. Aristarchus is definitely with Paul on this trip. There were more than likely others with him. We discussed some of that in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 21, verse 1. And it came to pass, we setting sail, being drawn away from them, meaning the elders of the assembly at Ephesus who were standing on the shore, uh, ostensibly standing on the shore, on a pier at Miletus, Running a straight course came to Kos. Kos is an island on the, well, off the shore of Miletus. And thereafter to Rhodos, or Rhodes, the famous island. And from there to Patara. There are several variations in that word amongst the manuscripts. Then finding a ship going across to Phoenicia. Boarding, we set sail. And Cupris, or Cyprus, coming into view and leaving it behind on the left, perhaps passing it on the left would be a valid translation, we sailed to Syria and arrived, or according to some manuscripts, landed at Tyre, or Turus, T-U-R-O-S in Greek, the famous city. For there the ship was unloading the freight. Tyre or often Tyrus, T-Y-R-U-S, in the King James Version, is where the legendary Europa was born. Europa was a woman born at Tyre. She was raped by Zeus. She was the daughter of Phoenix in Greek mythology. I really believed, and I've always believed as a strong reason why the Greeks had that mythology, why the Greeks said that Europe or Europa was born in Tyre. The, um, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that Tyre was the launching point for all of the colonies of, Phoenician, of, of the Phoenicians, and it was the city of Asher. The Greek myth and the names are certainly not accidental. The mainland city of Tyre, called Ushu by the Assyrians, was to a great degree destroyed by the same Nebuchadnezzar, who shortly thereafter raised Jerusalem. The island city was destroyed, raised completely, nearly 300 years later by Alexander the Great. During the Hellenistic period, Tyre had regained commercial significance as a port city, a status which it maintained throughout Roman times. Today, it's a cesspool in Lebanon, a genetic cesspool. Verse 4, 
Then discovering students, students attire, Christians attire. We abode with them for seven days. Who said to Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And here it is apparent that while Paul knew that he had to go to Jerusalem and possibly face great danger there, others also knew that Paul was endangered by going and out of good intentions, they warned him not to go. Apparently, without understanding that Yahweh's plans for Paul would prevail, in spite of the temporal cares and concerns which others had for his safety. Paul did realize that he had to go to Jerusalem, and therefore he went up regardless of the warnings. Verse 5. And when it came for us to finish the days, departing we went, all of them escorting us with women and children as far as the outside of the city. And kneeling upon the shore praying, we saluted each other and boarded into the ship. And they returned to their own affairs. The ship, of course, sailing south because Tyre is quite far north of Jerusalem. That these early Christians had a tendency to pray together before parting ways is also observed by Luke when Paul and Barnabas separated from the main body of Christians for their first journey from Antioch in Acts chapter 13, again in Acts chapter 20 when Paul departed from Miletus. It seems to have been a common occurrence. Verse 7, And we, completing the voyage from Tyre, arrived in Ptolemais, and greeting the brethren, stayed with them for one, for one day. It is nearly 30 miles by air traveling, on the south, on the coast, traveling south on the coast of Palestine from Tyre to Ptolemais. Originally called Antiochia Ptolemais, from shortly after the Greek conquest, the name was later shortened simply to Ptolemais evidently by one of the Ptolemies, which was the ancient city known as Akko in the King James Version of the Bible. Ptolemies was Akko by all accounts. And it's mentioned as, it's mentioned at Judges chapter 1, verse 31. Today it's called Acre, A-C-R-E. From Josephus' Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, line 188. This Ptolemais is a maritime city of Galilee, built in the Great Plain. So we see that, that, this, that this is important to me because we see that Galilee extended to the coast, right? In, in the mind of Josephus. It is surrounded with mountains that on the east side, about eight miles off, belongs to Galilee, but on the south belongs to Carmel, which is 15 miles distant from it. And that on the north is the highest of them all, and is called by the people of the country the Ladder of the Tyrians, which is at the distance of 12 and a half miles. So we see the exact location of Ptolemais, and, and we get an idea of um, what was considered to be Galilee, because it extended all the way to Lake, the, the Lake Kinneroth, but it, it extended all the way to the Mediterranean on the other side, on, on the west. Verse 8. 
And on the next day, departing, we came into Caesarea, and entering into the house of Philippus, the preacher of the good message, being from of the seven, we stayed with him. Now the majority text begins this verse, departing Paul and those came with him into Caesarea. So the King James reading might be different. As we have already explained in our presentation of Acts chapter 10, Herod had rebuilt a place which was called Stratos Tower, which was a short distance south of the ancient and famous city of Dor. And he renamed it Caesarea in honor of Augustus Caesar. It was, some kind of, it was sometimes called Caesarea Maritima, Maritime Caesarea, being on the sea to distinguish it from other towns bearing the same name, and, and there were quite a few of them. There were others in Palestine. This Caesarea was the administrative center of the province of Judea for the Romans. It was the place where Paul was to be held as a prisoner for several years, as we shall see later in the chapter of Acts, well, in the later chapters of Acts. Caesarea is about 30 miles south of Ptolemais by air. That Philip was a preacher of the good message, it was decided to translate the Greek word from which we have the term evangelist. I must also apologize for entertaining the thought, I don't know what I was thinking, when I presented Acts chapter 16 here last month, that perhaps, and I said maybe, this Philip was the apostle, because the apostle Philip was last mentioned at the end of Acts chapter 8, where he, he was recorded as having been in this same town. This is the town where the, the, the Bible leaves the apostle Philip in Acts chapter 8, and never mentions him again. But this Philip is said clearly to be from of the seven. Therefore, he must have been the Philip who is listed as one of those men chosen for the service to that early assembly of Christians as it is described in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, when there was a dispute between the, um, the Hellenists and the Hebrews or, or the people that were more strictly adhering to the, the customs of the Judeans as opposed to the Judean people who had become Hellenized and, and followed the customs of the Greeks. The um, martyr Stephen was also from among the seven. Verse 9, And with him there were four maiden daughters who prophesy. So Philip the evangelist had four daughters. The King James Version is correct in describing the daughters of Philip as virgins. Either word, maiden or virgin, being a proper translation of the Greek word parsinos. Strong's number 3933. While today, the idea may be novel, it may even be amusing to many people. In the ancient world and throughout most of history, unmarried women were expected to be virgins. If they were not virgins, then they must have been married. The Christogenian New Testament purposely employed the word maiden in order to provide an opportunity for such an illustration. Maidens and virgins 
should be synonymous. The two words should be synonymous. Of course, the idea today in, in our modern world is scoffed at, and, and that's pretty unfortunate. Verse 10. And upon abiding, and, and the, mass, the, the, the I'm sorry, the majority text has our abiding, and, and there are various other variations among the manuscripts. And upon abiding many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Hagabus, and coming to us and taking Paul's belt, binding his own hands and feet, said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, the man whose belt this is, thusly the Judeans in Jerusalem shall bind, and they shall deliver him into the hands of the heathens. While we cannot be entirely certain, it is very possible that this Hagabus is also the same man who is mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, now, that event had to happen before Herod Agrippa I died, so it happened before 41 AD, so it happened at least six, 44 AD, I'm sorry, so it happened at least 13 years before this event here. But it's very possible that this Haggabus is the same man mentioned there who predicted a famine where it says... And there arose one of them named Hagabus, who indicated through the Holy Spirit, or through the Spirit, I'm sorry, that a great famine is going to come upon the whole inhabited world, which happened in the time of Claudius. As for their abiding many days in Caesarea, it is evident that while still in Anatolia, Paul sought to make it to Jerusalem before the Pentecost, Yet here we see that the journey was made in sufficient time to afford him some leisure. Concerning the prophecy of Hagabus that the Judeans would bind Paul and deliver him into the hands of the heathens. The Greek word ethnos may have just as well as been translated as people in this passage. Of course, the King James Version has Gentiles here. And most commentators would insist that the word should be interpreted as if it referred to so-called non-Jews. However, it is highly unlikely that Gentiles, in the sense of non-Judeans, could have been meant by Hagabus's use of the word. And there's proof to that. Because if that were the case, and if Paul had really understood the term in that manner, then he would probably not have responded by saying that he was willing not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem. Being a Roman citizen, Paul certainly knew that if he were delivered to the Romans, he could not be executed in Jerusalem because he could not be executed without an appeal to Caesar in Rome, which is what actually happened. Therefore, Paul must have understood Hagabus' use of the term ethnos to refer to people, as he responded, to refer to people in Jerusalem, which is fully evident in his response. 
don't let the Judeo-Christians lie to you. Thusly do the Judaized denominational interpreters destroy the context and sense of many of the words in the Bible. If Paul understood Hagabus' use of the term ethnos, the way the Judeo-Christians understand it, Paul wouldn't have said anything about Jerusalem. The word should be people. Or perhaps heathens, as it's translated in the Christogenia New Testament. Meaning, and, and when I use the term heathen, I use the term to describe anyone who's not Christian, whether they're Israelites or not, whether they're white or not. Simply the mass of the people. And the mass of the people in Jerusalem, you would find Edomites and Israelites, you would find Christians and anti-Christians. Hence my, my, my use of the term heathens. That's how I understand it anyway. Verse 12. And as we heard these things, both we and they of the place exhorted him for which not to go up to Jerusalem. Luke certainly infers that he personally, as well as the other men who came from Miletus with them, had attempted to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Verse 13, then Paul responded, what do you do, weeping and breaking my heart? For I not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem, after being delivered to the ethnoi, the heathens, readily hold fast on behalf of the name of Prince Yahshua. And upon his not being persuaded, we kept silence, saying that the will of the prince must be. As Luke recorded it, Paul first expressed his resolution to go to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 19, even before the trouble in Ephesus, which was caused by the silversmiths, and well over a year before he actually made the journey. We see that at Acts 19.29. Acts 19.21, where from, from the King James Version it states, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. There was evidently no talking him out of going to Jerusalem, regardless of the consequences. And as we noted when we presented Acts chapter 19, Paul indeed went from Jerusalem to Rome. I just don't think he imagined that it was going to be in bonds. He thought he was going to go to Rome and then from Rome be able to visit Spain. He never made it to Spain or to Britain. Verse 15. Then after those days, getting prepared, we went up to Jerusalem and the students from Caesarea came with us, bringing Manasin, a certain Cypriot, a student from the beginning with whom we would lodge. And upon our coming into Jerusalem, the brethren gladly accepted us. 
And while little, while nothing else is known of Menasan, M-N-A-S-O-N, who must have had a house or some other dwelling in or near to Jerusalem, his name comes from a Greek word, which means remembering. The distance from Caesarea to Jerusalem being at least 75 miles, it probably took at least three full days to make the journey. Perhaps four. Verse 18. And on the next day, as soon as they got to Jerusalem, this is important. We're going to see this is important later on. And on the next day, Paul went in with us to Jacob or to James, and all the elders were present. Of course, this Jacobus, Jacobus in the Christogenian New Testament, Jacobus is the Apostle James, the writer of the epistle and the half-brother of Christ by his mother Mary mentioned in Matthew 13.55. These elders who were with James are not necessarily the other apostles. None of the other apostles are mentioned by name after Acts chapter 15, where Peter is, is last mentioned, except for James. After the decision of the apostles described in that chapter, Acts 15, when it was to be reported to the Christians of Antioch and to the other assemblies that they, that they wouldn't be bound to the Mosaic law or, or to the circumcision, Luke wrote in Acts chapter 16, verse 4, and as they passed through the cities, they transmitted to them to keep the opinions decided by the ambassadors or the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, by which Luke apparently distinguished the apostles from the elders. This is now about 10 years after the events of Acts 15. The events of Acts 15 occurred ostensibly, most likely, in 47 AD. Here it is 57 AD. Verse 19. And greeting them, he explained about each one of those things which Yahweh had done among the nations through his ministry. Now this must have been a lengthy explanation since it had been 10 years since Paul had seen James in Jerusalem. At least as we have it recorded. However, he may have seen some of these people in Antioch, where it is recorded that he visited there in Acts chapter 18, where he had then written in, in his epistle to the Galatians that, from verse 11, but when Cephas had come to Antiochia, to Antioch, I had confronted him personally because he was condemning himself. For before, some who were to come from James he had eaten in common with the, the, the nations, the people of the nations, the Christians that were not Judeans, and the Christians who were. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, being in fear of those of the circumcised. Galatians 2, 
verses 10 and 11. The so-called circumcised Paul wrote about in that epistle to the Galatians were the elders that came from James. They were the very elders who Paul is meeting with here. So we see that that they're insisting, that they're enforcing, and Peter was in fear of them, and, and they're enforcing that Judean Christians keep the Mosaic law, and that means keeping them separate from the Christians from among the nations. Verse 20, and those hearing it, extol Yahweh, the, the, the majority text and the Codex Beze have extolled the Lord rather than extolled God or Theos. And said to him, you consider, brethren, how many myriads there are among the Judeans who are believing and all being zealous of the law. We're going to talk about this passage at length. The Codex Sinaiticus wants the phrase among the Judeans, simply how many myriads there are who are believing and all being zealous of the law. I don't think that it makes that much of a difference in the context. The Codex Beze has in Judea instead, the majority text has of the Judeans, that there are, that there are four differences in the readings, right? These are those people, these myriads, among the Judeans who are believing. These are those people who are later called Ebionite Christians. And their numbers were evidently considerable since the Greek word myrias, which is only translated here as myriads where it appears in the plural. The word literally means 10,000. So the elders are saying how many tens of thousands of people there are among the Judeans who are believing and all being zealous of the law. The word Ebionite comes from the Hebrew word Ebion, Strong's Hebrew lexicon number 34. The word means poor or destitute. Now, one reason Paul had made this journey to Jerusalem was to deliver a gift of money to the poor of the saints there which he also explained in his second epistle to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We have shown that this epistle was written during Paul's journey from Macedonia to Achaia a year before this time, as Paul planned to make this trip to Jerusalem for that very purpose. He also professes as much in Acts chapter 24 verse 17, where after being arrested, he says that his purpose for coming to Jerusalem was in part that after many years I came making acts of charity and offerings to my nation. While we cannot agree with everything that the earliest Christian writers say about the various sects of Christianity in its first few centuries, since they often do not even agree with each other, here are a couple of passages related to the Ebionites. The first is from the late 2nd century Christian writer Irenaeus. It's found in his famous writing called Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 25, and I quote, 
Those who were called Ebionites agreed that the world was made by God, but their opinions with respect to the Lord are similar to those of Corinthus and Carpocrates. They use the gospel according to Matthew only, and they repudiate the Apostle Paul, maintaining that he was an apostate from the law. As to the prophetical writings, they endeavored to expound them in a somewhat singular manner. They practice circumcision, persevere in the observance of those customs which are enjoined by the law. They kept the rituals and are so Judaic in their style of life that they even adore Jerusalem as if it were the house of God. Later, in book 3, in chapter 21 of book 3 of that same work, Against Heresies, Irenaeus explains that following after certain other heretics, the Ebionites even de denied the divinity of Christ and the virgin birth where he says, the Ebionites, following these, assert that he was begotten by Joseph, thus destroying, as far as in them lies, such a marvelous dispensation of God and setting aside the testimony of the prophets which proceeded from God. So the Ebionites, professing to be Christians, were on the verge of being Jews. The third century Christian writer Origen, in book five of his work Against Celsus, writes, and I quote, for there are certain heretical sects which do not receive the epistles of the, the Apostle Paul, as the two sects of Ebionites and those who are termed Encratites. Now, now the Encratites are a separate sect. Irenaeus also mentioned them Encratite comes from a Greek word meaning self-control. The Encratites forbade marriage and encouraged abstinence from meat. That, that, they must have been like California vegetarian hippies, I guess. Except that California vegetarian hippies get married over and over again, right? Here we see from Origen that in his time the Ebionites were divided, where he says that there were two sects of Ebions. Origen's writing a at least a hundred years after Irenaeus, I think, from memory. It is fully apparent that the men in the company of the Apostle James, the men whom Luke calls elders here in verse 18, were among those same men of the circumcision sent from James to Antioch, and whom Peter was in fear of, as Paul described in Galatians chapter 2. It is also apparent that these men were the spiritual leaders of myriads among the Judeans who were believing, all being zealous of the law, which we see here in verse 20. Therefore, it can rather justly be concluded, and, and, and I would get a lot of steam off of this one from mainstream Christians, mainstream Christian academics who really sit and deny the Bible over and over again, Rather, it can justly be concluded that this was indeed the birthplace of what later became known as Ebionite Christianity, a sect which, while they apparently while they themselves were apparently ostracized from traditional Judaism, they would nevertheless maintain Judean Christians as a special class amongst Christians. 
through a keeping of the circumcision and the other rituals and commandments of the Mosaic law, as well as the maintenance of the Levitical priesthood, which dispensed those things. It is further apparent that Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, which was ostensibly written shortly after these very episodes, while Paul was under arrest in Caesarea, Paul's epistle to the Hebrews represents his answer to these people in regard to the law, to the prophets, and to the nature of Christ, among other things. The veracity of this interpretation is made even more plausible once it is realized that at this time the Apostle James was certainly not an obscure person. His death was noted by the historian Flavius Josephus in the 20th book of his Antiquities of the Judeans. There, Josephus records James's having been martyred in the period immediately following the death of the Roman procurator Festus. We will meet with Festus later on in this book of Acts. Festus was the man who had sent Paul in bonds to Rome in perhaps 59, but I'm, I tend to believe it was more likely 60 AD, and who himself had died while still in that same office in 62 AD. At this time, Festus actually, he, he Roman procurators are appointed for two years, and sometimes they're appointed to consecutive terms. Festus is one of those procurators who was indeed appointed to consecutive terms. He served for nearly four years. He died before his last term expired. At this time, an intemperate high priest, all of the, the, the Sadducees, the Edomite Sadducees of this family were intemperate. An intemperate high priest named Ananus, who was a son of the elder Ananus, who is the Sadducee who is often mentioned in Scripture. This younger Ananus took advantage of the death of Festus by slaughtering James, along with several other Christians, before a new procurator arrived from Rome. I'll quote the passage from Josephus. And now Caesar, upon hearing the death of Festus, sent Albinus into Judea as procurator. But the king deprived Joseph of the high priesthood. Now, now the king was Herod Agrippa II. Deprived Joseph of the high priesthood and bestowed the succession to that dignity on the son of Ananus, who was also himself called Ananus. Now the report goes 
that this oldest Ananus, the Ananus that we are familiar with from the crucifixion of Christ and, and from the, um, the earlier chapters of Acts, this oldest Ananus proved a most fortunate man, for he had five sons who had all performed the office of a high priest to God and who had himself enjoyed that dignity a long time formerly which had never happened to any other of our high priests in the presenting the early chapters of Acts. I believe it was especially Acts chapter 5. I argued my case that the family of Ananus and his other relatives who had the high priesthood, Caiaphas and, and his sons, they were all Edomites. But this younger Ananus, they were certainly all Sadducees. Who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He was also, this is Josephus now, he was also of the sect of the Sadducees, who are very rigid in judging offenders, just like New York Jews, above all the rest of the Judeans as we have already observed. When, therefore, Ananus was of this disposition, he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Festus was now dead, and Albinus, the, his replacement from Rome, and Albinus was but upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others, or some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. But as for those who seemed the most equitable of the citizens, and such as were the most uneasy at the breach of the laws, they disliked what was done. They also sent to the king, Agrippa II, who wasn't the king of Jerusalem. Agrippa was awarded a kingdom which was centered on Galilee, and also inherited part of his uncle Herod's kingdom of Chalcis, and um, Galilee and Trachonitis and a few of the other districts to the north of Jerusalem. But Agrippa too was also afforded the luxury by the Romans of overseeing the temple in Jerusalem, and he was given the power to appoint and to dislodge men to the office of high priest. He, he, he could appoint and unappoint high priests at will. Of, of course, there was always politics involved with that between Agrippa and the procurator of Judea, wh whoever the sitting Roman was. But Agrippa had the ability to unappoint and to appoint high priests, even though Jerusalem itself was not part of his kingdom. They also sent to the king, meaning Herod Agrippa II, desiring him to send to Ananus, 
that he should act so no more. He should be a good boy, I guess. For what he had already done was not to be justified. Nay, some of them went also to meet Albinus as he was upon his journey from Alexandria and informed him that it was not lawful for Ananus to assemble a Sanhedrin without his consent. I don't know when that happened in history, but it must have been true because Josephus wrote it, right? He was an eyewitness to many of these things, or at least he was a living contemporary, let me put it that way, to many of these things. Josephus wrote his histories a little later, but when this when these events occurred, Josephus was 20 years old. He was also around the age of 20, departing from the sect of the Essenes, which he had first joined himself to. And by the time he was 20, he became a Pharisee. So he started out as a teenager, as an Essene. He writes about that in his biographical work. By this time, I'm fairly certain he was a Pharisee. Whereupon Albinus complied with what they said. And wrote in anger to Adanus, and threatened that he would bring him to punishment for what he had done. On which King Agrippa took the high priesthood from him. So Ananus was basically the high priest, just long enough to kill James and some of his companions when he had ruled but three months and made Jesus, we see that was a common name in, in, in Judea at the time, it would be the name Joshua or Yahshua, and made Jesus the son of Damnaeus, how appropriate, the high priest. Now, as soon as Albinus had come to the city of Jerusalem, he used all his endeavors and care that the country might be kept in peace, and this by killing many of the Sicarii. Now the Sicarii, and, and in Acts chapter 22, I believe it is, Paul's even confused for one of them. The Sicarii were bandits who were very troublesome at this time. So that's the story of the death of James. James was must have been a notable individual for, or, or at least no obscure individual, for not only Herod, uh, I'm sorry, for not only um, Josephus to want to record his death in this manner, but also, as Josephus records, for, for many of the more prominent citizens of Jerusalem to go out of their way to go to Albinus the incoming procurator, and complain about the sitting high priest who, who really did have, except for the king and the procurator, the sitting high priest in Jerusalem really did have a lot of political power. However, Albinus, be, uh, I'm sorry, that this um, Ananus, being a very new high priest, would, would of course... Um, not, not have been very entrenched in his political power, but still, he had a very influential father. So it, it's, um, it, it really is a, a, a daring move on the part of the prominent citizens who came 
to complain about the murder of James, and, and James must have been, at least in some circles, he must have been, he must have been loved. To, to be protected for all these years, I, I mean, we know that the hand of God is in this too, but to be protected for all these years and and, and to um for, for his death to to be protested like that it it says something for James's um position in 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 the in the citizenry of, of Jerusalem. However, we also see that um James fully went along with the Judaizers, whether he really believed that that's the way it should be or not is immaterial, that these men that, that are clinging to this Levitical priesthood and despising the teachings of Paul, which are really, really are based on the scripture, but which are the, the prophecies concerning the temple and, and, and the oblations and the sacrifices are very clear in Daniel. And, and we'll, I think I quote some of that here in, in the upcoming parts of this presentation. Acts 21.21. And they are informed, meaning those myriads of, of Judeans who are believers and, and zealous of the law. And they are informed concerning you that you teach departure from Moses for the Judeans throughout all the nations saying for them not to circumcise the children, nor to walk in the customs. So what is it? By all means, they shall hear that you have come. Now, the majority text, along with the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Beze, and Laudianus, they have, so what is it? By all means, there is need for a multitude to come together, for they shall hear that you have come. The Christianity New Testament, I chose to follow the Codex Vaticanus. It, it's hard, and, and the Codex Ephraimi Siri, which is generally considered to be a, a text of the Alexandrian tradition, the Codex Ephraimi Siri agrees with the Codex Vaticanus here. Now, now, the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus are the two most dependable codexes in my estimation, which isn't perfect, but it, it's, that's what I believe. And it's hard to, um, to choose which one to follow when those two are divided. Now, interestingly here, the Codex Alexandrinus and the Codex Ephraimi Siri they're both codices of the Alexandrian tradition, and they're also divided on this verse. So, so that's kind of strange, right? I think so, anyway. It's just a translator's note. As we have seen in our presentation of Acts chapter 15, James fully agreed with Peter where ten years before this time it was decided by the apostles that Christians from among the nations should not be compelled to the circumcision, nor to keep the laws of Moses, except for a couple of things, such as the admonishments to keep certain of the food laws, 
and to abstain from fornication, things which James must have felt transcended the Mosaic law. And, and indeed they do, because they're laws that go all the way back to Adam, right? Especially the law about fornication or race mixing. Peter made a telling statement at Acts 15.11, where Peter said, But through the favor of Prince Yahshua, we, meaning the Judeans, trust to be saved by the same manner as they also. And this indicates that Peter agreed in principle with things which Paul often taught, with things which Paul often taught in his epistles, that salvation was not by the law, and that there was no difference between Judean Christians and those from among the nations who were really dispersed Israelites, or they should be. However, in Galatians chapter 2, in an epistle which was written at a point between the events of Acts 15 and those events recorded here, Paul accuses Peter of vacillating on this issue on account of those of the circumcision who were sent from Antioch to Antioch from James. This certainly happened as Paul was visiting Antioch for the last time, which is recorded in Acts chapter 18. And some time after Paul himself had circumcised Timothy for the same reasons, on account of the Judeans, which was related at the opening of Acts chapter 16. So Paul had come to the full realization of the scripture in between Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 18. It cannot be told when James actually wrote the single surviving epistle which is accredited to him. In his epistle, writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, to the dispersed Israelites of old, James certainly does display his expectation that Christians from among the nations abide in the implanted word which is able to save your souls, which is in what is now known as chapter 1 of that epistle. Referring to the implanted word, James was certainly referring not to the Mosaic law, but to the law written in their hearts, which was prophesied in Jeremiah 31:33, and mentioned also by Paul in Romans chapters 2 and 6. With this reference to the implanted word, and a later reference, as we see in James chapter 2, a later reference to the perfect law of freedom, James is certainly, when he wrote his epistle, still in agreement with what was decided in Acts chapter 15 concerning the Christians from among the nations and the Mosaic law. And we will see that in the subsequent verses of Acts chapter 21 here. We will see that substantiated. Many commentators want to uphold the notion that James was criticizing Paul, where he said at the end of chapter 2 of that epistle, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. There James seems to be saying that the works or deeds which he expects Christians to perform are those related to loving our brethren as we love ourselves and not related to the rituals of the law. In that chapter, the theme is the respect of the status of persons. And James is teaching that we should seek to uplift our lesser brethren and not seek to curry the favor of the wealthy 
at the expense of our lesser brethren. However, while this is certainly sound Christian teaching, it is not truly addressing the teachings of Paul. While Paul taught the relinquishing of the works of the law, which is a reference to the rituals of the Mosaic law, Paul also very frequently mentioned the need for Christians to perform good deeds. Christians should perform good deeds for one another as a result of their faith. For instance, Paul said in Hebrews chapter 10, which was an epistle, as, we, as I hope to, to um, demonstrate before this presentation, of Acts is over. It's an epistle that James must have read. Paul says in chapter 10 from verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he, meaning God, is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto, good, unto love and to good works. So while James may have been addressing a misunderstanding of Paul's teachings, either by himself or by others, he and Paul were actually in agreement on these matters as well. The only notable point of difference in Christian doctrine between Paul and James is found here in Acts chapter 21, and that is whether Judean Christians should adhere to the circumcision and to the other rituals of the Mosaic law. Paul taught that they should depart, which, as we explained at length while presenting our presentation of Acts chapter 15, would facilitate the fulfillment of the one-stick prophecy found in Ezekiel chapter 37. James taught that they should keep the traditions, as we see here, and therefore they would remain distinct. The Judean Christians would remain distinct. They would be a second, uh, that they would be a, a distinct class of Christians in Christianity. And if that were the case, we would assert that the one-stick prophecy of Ezekiel could not be fulfilled. It was not meant to be, and Ebionite Christianity eventually faded into oblivion where it belongs. However, the Pharisaism that Ebionite Christians upheld clearly permeated the Roman Church throughout later history, there's no doubt. A lot of the errors of the Catholic Church comes directly from the leaven of the Pharisees. Verse 23, therefore do this which we say to you, there are among us four men having a vow upon themselves. Taking them, you must be purified with them and pay the expense for them that they shave their heads. And all shall know that that which they are informed concerning you is nothing, but that you yourself also walk in line keeping the law. In these verses, we have James, or perhaps both James and the elders who were with him, requiring Paul to undergo a certain purification ritual in the temple 
as a sort of suggestion to the people concerned that Paul himself has continued to adhere to the Mosaic law. It seems from the observation that there were so many of the faith in Jerusalem who were zealous of the law, which is stated in verse 20, and then by the statement that by all means they shall hear that you have come, found in verse 22, that this demand is being made with the hope that its fulfillment would calm the excitement of these people which they may have upon seeing Paul of Tarsus, since they had despised him for the things which he was teaching concerning the law. Yet Paul says in Galatians that the people of Jerusalem didn't even recognize him, right? Had, didn't know him by his face. He may have made that realization. I, I don't know. He, he, here he just goes along with James. Verse 25. And concerning those of the nations who believe, we deciding have commanded them to avoid both that which is sacrificed to idols and blood and strangled and fornication. And here is an affirmation of that decision by the apostles in relation to Christians from among the nations, as it was originally made during the events which were recorded in Acts chapter 15. There are six different readings of the second half of this verse amongst the six oldest codices, which are regularly cited here, and the majority text, and only the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Alexandrinus agree, and, and that's the reading the Christogenian New Testament follows here. None of them significantly change the sense of what is expressed in the text, except perhaps that the Codex Beze wants the mention of things strangled. Verse 26, Then Paul, taking the men on the following day, being purified with them, went into the temple giving notice of the fulfillment of the days of purification until when the offering is offered on behalf of each one of them. While Paul had already rejected the necessity for any Christian to keep the Mosaic law, and he rejects it throughout his epistles, and in the epistles that he had already written, he already wrote, 1 and 2 Corinthians. He already wrote the epistle to the Galatians, which made a long comparison between those who would keep the law of Moses and, and those who would not, but those who would abide the Ten Commandments, of course, but those who would not keep the rituals, the works of the law, which these Ebionite Christians insisted upon, and which James insisted, clearly insists upon here, wanting Paul to undergo a, a cleansing, a purification ritual. While Paul had already rejected the necessity for any Christian to keep the Mosaic law throughout his epistles, here he nevertheless accedes to James's demands and goes to the temple for the ritual. This, purif this Judean purification ritual in the temple almost certainly included an immersion or baptism in water. It also included an offering, which is explicit in the text here. Yet, aside from the one-stick prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 37, 
It is evident that James and the others with him could not have fully understood the prophecy concerning the Messiah found in Daniel chapter 9, which also said that such things would cease. Daniel 9.27, and he, meaning the Messiah of Daniel 9.26, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, Yahweh indeed, as Paul forewarns, as Paul writes in Romans 16.20, Yahweh indeed made the sanctuary permanently desolate in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, 13 years after this incident. However, Paul was far ahead of James and these others in his understanding of the law and the prophets and the words of Christ himself. Paul already told the Romans, Satan will that God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. He had already written two Thessalonians where he talks about the um, Satan sitting in the temple pretending that he is God. And by that, Paul certainly means these Edomite Sadducee high priests. Without a doubt, he understood who Satan was. It is evident that Paul did what James and these others had insisted. And ostensibly, he did it out of deference to his elders, whether he personally agreed with them or not, as Paul had once before submitted himself to the decision of the apostles, which is what's recorded in Acts chapter 15. Even though that decision worked out in Paul's favor, Paul still submitted himself to that decision. Yet it is evident that perhaps Paul's undergoing a ritual to, to which he must have also submitted himself earlier in life would not matter. Paul already expressed the concept that one should stay in that manner in which he was born and raised in his epistle to the Corinthians at 1 Corinthians 7.20. Yet, newly born children which are what are mentioned here in Acts 21.21, where it is said that Paul taught Judeans not to circumcise their children, newly born children are not born under the Old Covenant. They're not born into the law of Moses if they're not circumcised. Paul explains elsewhere that he getting himself circumcised is responsible to keep the whole law. Newly born children are born under the new covenant. While Christians from among the nations, they were born in apostasy. Paul was called in Judaism, keeping the law and its rituals. To this, we may compare his comments to the Corinthians, which were made several years earlier, while he was still in Ephesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is why it's important to know when Paul's epistles were written. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 from verse 20. Each in the calling in which he has been called, in this he must abide. A bondman 
you have been called, it must not be a concern to you. But then if you have the ability to become free, rather you use it. For he who is called a bondman and the prince is a freedman of the prince. Likewise, he who is called free is a bondman of Christ. You have been purchased for a price, and you should not become slaves of men. Each in that which he has been called, brethren, in that he must remain before Yahweh. So Paul went along with his elders and submitted to the ritual. It's no big deal. Verse 27. And as the seven days were about to be completed, the Judeans from Asia, seeing him in the temple, Judeans from Jerusalem didn't recognize him, seeing him in the temple confused all the crowd and laid the hands upon him, crying out, Men, Israelites, help! This is the man who against the people in the law in this place is teaching all everywhere. And further also has brought Greeks into the temple and profaned this holy place. The Judeans from Asia who are mentioned here seem to be those from Ephesus who were in the theater when the trouble with the silversmiths occurred. Acts chapter 19, verse 33. And from the crowd, they brought up Alexandros. This is when Demetrius raised the crowd in the theater and, and, and railed against Paul of Tarsus and, and his fellow Christians for teaching that idols made with hands are, are not gods. Demetrius was... And, and the rest of the smiths, they, they were afraid of losing their business. And from the crowd, they brought up Alexandros, the Judeans, putting him forth. And Alexandros, motioning with the hand, wished to speak in defense to the people. But recognizing that he is a Judean, one voice rose from all, crying out for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And as we remarked when presenting Acts chapter 19, Alexandros and the Judeans here were not friendly to Christianity. And this Alexandros may well have been the man whom, called, whom Paul called a blasphemer in his epistle to Timothy, which was written a short time after he left Ephesus. Alexandros, the coppersmith. He's mentioned again in 2 Timothy 4.14, an epistle which Paul does not write until he gets to Rome. So Alexandros, the coppersmith, is mentioned twice. And once, shortly after Paul leaves Ephesus, Paul writes about Alexandros the coppersmith in his letter to Timothy and the trouble that he called, caused him and, and that he was a blasphemer. The accusation that Paul brought Greeks into the temple is not necessarily true. As we said in our Acts chapter 10 presentation, at this time, there were warning signs around the temple in Jerusalem threatening death to anyone who was not a Judean who dared to enter. All or part 
of at least two such inscriptions have been found, which stated in Greek that no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. There is a copy of this temple warning posted at Christagenia.org. It was linked in the notes to my Acts chapter 10 presentation. It will be linked again in the notes to this presentation. However, at that time the term Judean was not a racial or national designation. It was more of a religious designation, which would have included any, circum any circumcised Israelite, Edomite, or other convert. Since Judea had become a multicultural, ethnically diverse political entity, it was not a nation or a tribe at this time. There is a sharp contrast of the attitudes of Judeans of this era to those of an earlier one. When Alexander the Great came into Jerusalem, Josephus wrote that the city welcomed him with all honor, and that Alexander was actually invited into the temple for a sacrifice to God. That's described in Antiquities, Book 11. Verse 29 of Acts, Chapter 21. For they had before seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, whom they believed that Paul had brought into the temple. And this also is going to require a long conversation. I've been confronted with this by certain Paul bashers in the past. How could Paul bring Trophimus into the temple in Acts chapter 21 if Paul says he left him behind in Miletus in 2 Timothy chapter 4? Tonight, we will resolve that conflict. Here we have an apparent conflict, for on the surface, this statement concerning Trophimus and Paul's attestation in 2 Timothy 4.20 concerning Trophimus, where he says that he left him behind in Miletus, seems to be irreconcilable. Here it shall be shown that either Paul made a previous trip with Trophimus to Jerusalem at least several years before this, during his three-year sojourn in Ephesus, which is unrecorded elsewhere, but which is what Luke is referencing here, and which is more than likely the case, I'm sure it is, or there is an interpolation either here or in 2 Timothy. However, the apparent conflict and its true understanding are more complex than that, and, and I'm going to discuss these facets. First, we need sufficient background information. From Paul's own writing, we have the following facts. One, Timothy was at some point under arrest with Paul, as can be told from the last verses of Hebrews chapter 13. Therefore, Timothy must have already been aware of many of the circumstances of Paul's ministry. If one followed Acts chapter 20 closely, one may deduce that Timothy is here with Paul and possibly even arrested with him. Next, <clears throat> there is no doubt that the second epistle to Timothy was written from Rome, which Paul explicitly indicates in 2 Timothy 1.17 and indirectly indicates in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Here we will cite 2 Timothy 1, 16 to 18. The prince should give mercy to those of the house of Onesiphorus, 
because often he refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But being in Rome, eagerly sought and found me. The prince should give to him to find appropriate mercy in that day, and how much he has served in Ephesus, you would know better. <clears throat> how would Timothy know that? Because Timothy was in Ephesus when Paul wrote to Timothy. This last statement in verse 18, <clears throat> as well as secondary evidence in the subscripts to this epistle, indicate that Timothy actually was in Ephesus and that he was an overseer or bishop of the Christian assembly there. Now, the subscripts to Paul's epistles are correctly deemed to have been written by later hands. Indeed, they were. And they often vary significantly from one manuscript to another, so they shouldn't be taken as canon. But Paul's statements at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-7, through 7, indicate that he believed he was, he was near the end of his life, and one version of the subscripts even goes so far as to state that he had already stood before Nero twice, although I would not accept that statement without much investigation. However, elsewhere, there is sure evidence that Paul did write epistles after he defended himself before Nero. That evidence is in the first chapter of his epistle to the Philippians, which was also written from Rome. At the end of his second epistle to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul states that Trophimus I left behind in Miletus being sick. Once the history of these epistles is properly understood, when and where each of them were written, this statement seems to be out of place because Paul must have written 2 Timothy at least three years and perhaps even four years after he departed from Miletus. And the epistle to Hebrews indicates that Timothy was probably already familiar with all this. However, the statement is justified once one reads all of 2 Timothy. And once one realizes that throughout 2 Timothy, Paul reflects upon many of the people associated with the last years of his ministry. And he may only have mentioned all of them so that Timothy would be reminded of all of them and where they stood in relation to Paul's ministry, that Timothy would read these things to the entire assembly once he received the epistle as it was customary to do so at the time, and we know that from Colossians 4.16 and from 1 Thessalonians 5.27. In that manner, the entire assembly of Christians at Ephesus would be informed as to how each of these men stood with Paul, and they would hear it directly. Seeing all of these things from Paul's epistles, we may make the following assessment of Luke's statement here in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Here in Acts chapter 20, it is only recorded that Paul arrived in Jerusalem and then the very next day, immediately, 
he went to see James. And not that he ever went to the temple or anywhere else before going to see James. Therefore, it is evident that there was not yet any opportunity on his visit for, to Jerusalem for any Judeans to have seen Paul with Trophimus in the temple. This is the time of the Feast of Pentecost, and under the Mosaic Law, it is one of the feasts upon which all Israelite men are commanded to appear in Jerusalem. That the Judeans continued to obey these laws is clear in the Gospel accounts and in Acts chapter 2, and in other places in Acts. These men from Asia are here for the feast, just as Paul had desired to be here for the feast a fact noted by Luke in the preceding chapters of Acts. So we see that the Judeans from Ephesus have most likely been attending these feasts in Jerusalem regularly, as the law requires. And that is why they are, they are here to accuse Paul at this very time. With all of this, it can only be concluded that where Luke says, for they had before seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, that Paul also must have traveled to these feasts while he spent three years at Ephesus. But Luke, who was not with Paul from the time Paul left him in Philippi, Acts chapter 16, to the time that he met him in the Troad in Acts chapter 20, simply did not record any of these trips. Therefore, Paul must have visited Jerusalem from Ephesus for the feasts, as the other Judeans in Ephesus also did. And he must have brought Trophimus along with him on one of those earlier trips. And that is what Luke is referencing here. With this evidence, and in that manner, there is no conflict with this statement here in Acts and Paul's statement concerning Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4.20. Indeed, according to the laws at the time, if Trophimus were found in Jerusalem in the temple with Paul here in Acts chapter 21, then he would be standing trial for a capital offense upon being accused of entering the temple. Evidently, Trophimus wasn't found in Jerusalem or the Judeans from Asia would be quick to accuse him. Rather, Luke is referring to an earlier, unrecorded trip to Jerusalem where Trophimus must have accompanied Paul to the city, perhaps even three or four years earlier than this event. And Trophimus is not here at the present time so he's not standing trial for a capital offense. So Paul still mentions him in 2 Timothy 4.20. A proper understanding of the events of Acts is only attainable once one realizes that the records are far from complete. And once one properly synthesizes the information in Paul's epistles with the accounts which are in Acts, to accomplish such a thing, 
one must first break loose the shackles of all the typical Judeo-Christian presumptions. For instance, the first time that a commentator on Acts mentions the three missionary journeys of Paul, he displays the fact that his view of the book of Acts is based upon false premises and that his knowledge is incomplete. Therefore, he is really only parroting something which he learned secondhand and which itself is based upon incorrect premises. That's just the way it is. Verse 30. The whole city was aroused, and there was a tumultuous concourse of the people. And seizing Paul, they dragged him outside of the temple and immediately closed the doors. And seeking to kill him, a report went up to the commander of the cohort, or, or the troop, that the whole of Jerusalem was in confusion, who at once, taking soldiers and centurions, ran down to them. And they, seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. We have already described the signs posted around the temple at Jerusalem at this time, which warned that any, any non-Judean entering into the temple would be punished with the penalty of death. This would include any man who was not circumcised. Here, the jealousy which the Judeans had for the temple and for their own religious exclusivity is revealed. It'll be revealed again in Acts chapter 22. And such a charge would indeed incite the people to riot. And we have evidence of similar riots in the recent, in, in the years just before this event here. Because Judaism was rather prone to the reproach of pagan Romans, who were greatly in the majority, the emperors were always trying to get their effigies of, of, of themselves into the temple or into Jerusalem. There were riots when, um, when that happened in the time of Tiberius. Because Judaism was rather prone to the reproach of the pagan Romans who were greatly in the majority and who obviously commanded the empire, the Judeans were constantly on guard against encroachments upon their temple. One example of such a riot not long before this very time is described. In the second book of Josephus's Wars of the Judeans, and I will read from line 223, this is Wars, book 2, chapter 12, by Whiston's numbering. Now after the death of Herod, king of Chalcis, Claudius set Agrippa, meaning Agrippa II, the son of Agrippa, meaning Agrippa I, whose death is recorded in Acts chapter 12, Claudius set Agrippa over his uncle's kingdom while Cumanus took upon him the office of procurator of the rest, which was a Roman province, meaning the rest of Judea. And therein he succeeded Alexander, under which Cumanus began the troubles. And the Judeans, ruin came on. In, in other words, Josephus is saying that the embryo 
of the revolt from 66 to 70 AD began in the time of Cumanus in the days of Claudius. Now, Claudius died in 54 AD when Nero became the emperor. Right now, we are in 57 AD. Cumanus, I don't know if his pro, his um, office as procurator probably extended beyond the death of Claudius, but that's the closest that this could be dated that I know of. Cumanus succeeded Alexander. I'm sorry. The reign of Agrippa II over Chalcis succeeded Alexander, under which Cumanus began the troubles, and the Judeans' ruin came on. For when the multitude were come together to Jerusalem, to the feast of unleavened bread, and a Roman cohort stood over the cloisters of the temple, for they were always armed and kept guard at the festivals, to prevent any sedition which the multitude thus gathered together might make, one of the soldiers pulled back his garment and cowering down after an, after an indecent manner turned his breach to the Judeans and spoke such words as you might expect upon such a posture. And, and therefore we see how ancient the lewd and rude tradition really is. Well, which is still rather popular in some circles today, right? At this, the whole multitude had indignation. A Roman told all the Judeans to kiss his derriere, obviously. And made a clamor to Cumanus that he would punish the soldier. While the rasher, part of the youth and such as were naturally the most tumultuous, fell to fighting, and caught up stones and threw them at the soldiers. Upon which Cumanus was afraid lest all the people should make an assault upon him, and sent to call for more armed men. Who, when they came in great numbers into the cloisters, the Judeans were in very great consternation. And being beaten out of the temple, they ran into the city. And the violence with which they crowded to get out was so great that they trod upon each other and squeezed one another till 10,000 of them were killed. Insomuch that this feast became the cause of mourning to the whole nation, and every family lamented their own relatives. Now, Cumanus was the procurator of Judea not long before Felix, whom we know from Acts chapters 23 to 25. So we see that from one episode of agitation by a single Roman soldier, a tumult occurred and 10,000 people perished. From this, we may also perceive that many hundreds of thousands of people were attending these feasts. I, I would like to say upwards of 2 million were attending the feasts because the population of Jerusalem has been estimated at about 2 million at this time. And, and I don't remember where, but I think I've seen statements saying that during the feasts, 
the population doubled because Judeans came from all over the Roman world. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, so it's not fantastic. Judeans came from all over the Roman world to attend these feasts. So we see from this, from this one episode with the lewd Roman soldier, we see how possible it is that merely hearing an accusation that Paul defiled the temple by bringing one of the uncircumcised into it, true or not, without trial or any evidence, the Judeans are incited to riot and would kill Paul even before hearing a defense. That's the way they were. Sounds like um, the, the California hippie Jews of today. Sounds like the Chicago Seven, right? They were Jews too. Verse 33. Then approaching, the commander took him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and, and inquired who he may be and what it is that he was doing. But others among the crowd called out something different. And not being able to know with certainty because of the tumult, he ordered him to be brought into the encampment or the fortress. As we saw in Ephesus, Paul's adversaries were always quick to accuse him and therefore never had their stories straight. The same thing was going on in the theater at Ephesus. Demetrius was making one set of claims and somebody else was shouting out something different. The word translated commander everywhere in this chapter is the word kiliarch. Literally, it's a leader of a thousand. It's a step up the ladder from centurion, which is a leader of hundred. The Latin equivalent is tribune. And there were generally only six to each legion. There were six tribunes. The Greek word parambole here is an encampment, and it may have been translated as a fortress. Verse 35, and when he came to the stairs, the stairs leading up to the fortress, it happened to him to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the multitude of the people followed, crying out, kill him. And that, in, in the um, King James Version here, it's away with him. And at Acts chapter 12, the King James Version uses the same verb, and, and, and Herod the, the um, soldiers who allowed Peter to escape, Herod says, away with them in this Christogenian New Testament, the King James Version has killed them or something similar. The, the verb can be rendered literally or allegorically, and sometimes it's hard to figure out which way it should be. Here, the Christogenian New Testament says that the people cried out, kill him. The same verb is um, used where the people shout out in favor of Barnabas against Christ in Luke 23:18, It could be kill him, it could be away with him. With this, we shall suspend our presentation of Acts chapter 28, since the last paragraph of the chapter is better presented with Acts chapter 29. And I will do that. Yahweh willing, I will do that on Friday, December 6th. The, um, the program next week, November 29th, is tentative. 
I believe I, I personally will be visiting family in New York for most of the week. I'll, I'll be visiting my mother. I haven't seen in many months. Um, I think it may be Sword Brethren with Mike Delaney of ProSync.org here and 911MissingLinks.com here on Friday, November 29th. I'm waiting for confirmation from Mike. I believe they will be discussing the various conspiracy theories, the 9-11 conspiracy theories, some of which are more harebrained than others, and, and I believe that all these crazy conspiracy theories, I, I mean, th there's no doubt in my mind that the Jews are responsible for 9-11. Anybody that doubts that should go watch Mike Delaney's movie at 911missinglinks.com. But some of the various 9-11 conspiracy theories only serve to discredit those who would truly seek to publish and to find the truth on, on, in, in that manner. And, and, and it's important, but while it's more important to the Jews than it is to most white men and women, and, and I believe it's they who, who are spreading all of these harebrained conspiracy theories which discredit people from publishing who, who attempt to publish the truth that there's no doubt in my mind that that's the the jews that they get you know, when somebody's on 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 a valid trail our enemies love to throw up 50 rabbit holes and and they have the time and the resources and and the money to do it and they do it all the time. That's why there's so much division in Christian identity. I'm convinced it's the same problem. But when somebody publishes the truth, the Jews throw up 50 rabbit holes, and most Christians end up down one of those rabbit holes because they don't study for themselves. The material which I present at Christagenia.org, I beg people to study for themselves. Open up the books and make sure I'm right. Go to the scriptures and make sure what I say is right. And, and that's the way it should be, so that we can eliminate some of the rabbit holes, like, like the damn Jew from Chicago who has built his ministry of late, built his ministry in the defense of bastards, half-breeds, and, and every other genetic freak that, that, that happens to pick up a Bible. Yeah. The, the Jews are the authors of rabbit holes. Okay, I will be here tomorrow night with Pragmatic Genesis. I think it's part eight. I could be wrong, but we're going to discuss Genesis chapters five through, well, well through the flood. Let's put it that way. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Good night. Yahweh willing, I'll be here next Friday. Well, well Mike Delaney and, and Sword Brethren will be here next Friday, and I'll be here in two weeks with Acts chapter 22. Good night.